All right, so as we kind of conclude this series, I just want to very quickly go back and talk about the, the principles of Celebrate Recovery that we've discussed to date. So we're going to do this fast. The first principle comes from Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, and it says, I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. Once we come to that realization, um, then we have to believe that God exists, that we matter, and that He has the power to help us recover. And then finally, we have to make a decision uh, to consciously choose to commit all our lives and will to Christ's care and control. And then once we've done that, we start working on our problems. So celebrate four, uh, principle four is openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. And it's followed with five, voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask Him to remove my character defects. And then last week, we talked about principle number six, which is to evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me, and make amends for harm I've done to others, except when to do so would harm them or others. Uh, Today, we're going to finish the the Beatitudes and these principles of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, We've got two principles we'll talk about today, um, but before we get into those, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the the COVID-19. Now, there's a difference between COVID-19 and the COVID-19. COVID-19 is this disease. It's a coronavirus variant. We've all heard about it. Maybe it's in the news a little bit. The COVID-19 is the weight you put on while you've been home, not going out to the gym or to the pool or uh, to the basketball court during coronavirus, okay? So I will not ask for a show of hands about who has put on the COVID-19, but it's a thing, okay? And I got to tell you, uh, I-, I stood on the scale earlier this week and I hit the highest number I've been at in like the last three years. Um, I- 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 for me, it was a big deal, okay? Uh, so uh, the COVID-19 is a thing. Um, and so uh, I started thinking, all right, so what's, what, what's, the, what's the challenge? How do we do this well? How do we get rid of the COVID-19? Uh, so I'm curious, and now I will ask for a show of hands, I'm curious if anyone here has ever tried any kind of diet, any kind of diet at all. Ever just raise your hand. Anybody, anybody have a diet? Okay, many, many people. All right, that's great. All right, now here's the next question. If you tried some kind of diet to lose weight, um, just skip ahead six months after that. Uh, raise your hand if some of that weight came back. Okay, yeah, all right. So um, you're in good company. So the statistic is that um, people who uh, diet to lose weight, on average, gain that weight back. Uh, In fact, uh, between 80 and 95% of people who go on a diet get the weight back after it's over. That's incredible. And just the moral of the story is you shouldn't diet, right? No, that's not the point. Um, uh, 80 to 95% of dieters relapse and regain the weight they lost. And so um, naturally, I started wondering why that was the case. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting research about this. I can't get into all of it, and I don't know all of it perfectly. Um, but there are two big factors, right? One is psychological and one is physiological. The psychological factor is um, we sort of get in these habits, right? And so I, you know, I like to have a snack at night before I go to bed. And I, when I get stressed out, I eat. Or when I'm um, tired of staying up too late, I eat. Or, and, and even though I can get out of, of that behavior for a short period of time, um, after my diet is over, I kind of revert to my normal habits, right? The second reason is, is physiological. Really interesting. Uh, and again, I don't know this perfectly well, but my understanding is that at least in the abdomen, uh, you don't ever make new fat cells. 
Okay? So you have like a set number of fat cells. So when you gain weight, at least, you know, in the middle section, you gain weight by, by adding fat into the cells you already have. So imagine those cells as like a little plastic bag, right? And you can stretch it out to put more in the bag. Um, you empty the bag out, but it stays stretched, which means the next time you want to put food in that bag, it's really easy to fill, right? It's ready to fill up. Um, the other interesting piece about the, the physiological prospects of weight loss is, and this is all just free information for you today, um, is that there is, a, there is a hormone your body secretes when, when your fat cells feel full. And when you lose weight and you empty out some of those cells, your body stops secreting that hormone as effectively and you start feeling more hungry all the time. It's not that you necessarily are um, you know, deficient on calories, but your body says, whoa, 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 all those cells aren't supposed to be empty. Let's send a warning sign to the brain and tell it to go eat. So here's the moral of the story, right? When you're trying to make a change, like losing weight, um, it's not just your brain, but even your body is kind of fighting you as you go. And so if all you do is just make a decision to lose weight and diet and then quit, you're probably going to go right back to where you were. Celebrate Recovery says um, that recovery requires a decision followed by a process. A decision followed by a process. And I would argue, um, like with weight loss, whenever we are trying to overcome a sin in our life or a sin that's been done against us, and we just make a decision and then don't follow up on it, um, we're going to discover that our brains and even our bodies are sometimes fighting us. Uh, and, and we get back in the same patterns of behavior and the same ways of thinking, and our bodies start craving the same things. And pretty quickly, um, we're back in the 80 to 95% of people who are relapsing to where we once were. So I want to think this morning particularly about how we avoid that um, problem of, of relapse into our sin. Uh, and, and I think there are going to be two really critical tools for us to avoid that, and they're going to be our two principles today. Um, one more thing about relapse. Uh, I think that we think of relapse as a, a problem that begins with catastrophe, right? Boy, you know, it seemed like his life was all together, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he relapsed and things fell apart. And, and I would argue, and Celebrate Recovery would argue, that, that relapse doesn't begin with catastrophe. It begins with complacency. And, and not unlike the diet analogy, right? So many times in our lives we say, hey, I've finally beaten that problem. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I, I've had uh, too many heartbreaking conversations with people over the years who managed to overcome a major obstacle in their life and then got complacent. Uh, in fact, I have a, a very close um, person in my life who um, was a addict with alcohol and cocaine and uh, wrestled with that addiction for many, many years. Finally, there was intervention. They got sober. They went to rehab for three months. They came back and did all the normal stuff you're supposed to do, the 90 meetings and 90 days. And then after several months of being clean, um, I started hearing this person say, boy, I think I've really kicked the problem, right? I solved it. It's gone. And a few months after that, they started saying, you know what? Now that I've conquered my alcoholism, I can have a drink once in a while. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. And I remember being on the phone and pleading with them and saying, please don't do this. 
Like, please don't do this. And them saying, you don't understand, Jim, I beat it. A year and a half later, they were back in rehab, right? Because all the addiction all came back, um, destroying their life again. That complacency is so dangerous for us. It's so easy for us to say, yeah, whatever that problem was in my life, uh, it's never coming back again. I've beaten it. And it's the I've beaten it part that's the problem. Um, you all know the, the phrase, shoot everything that flies, claim everything that lands. I really like that for most areas of my life, but, but not in this one, right? Because when I start claiming that I did it, right, that it's me that succeeded over this problem, I'm in a lot of trouble. We began this process by saying um, our first step was to admit that we were powerless, right? That, that God blesses those who are poor in spirit. It reminds me of a conversation that Paul has with the church in Galatia. Well, the Galatian church came to faith um, through um, Paul's teaching and preaching and just a, a, an amazing community. Um, but then at some point, they started wandering astray from the idea of, of salvation through faith, and they started believing that God would only love them if they obeyed all the rules, right? If they had to obey all the Old Testament laws again to be saved. And, and Paul writes them, and it's his angriest letter in the, in the whole um, Bible. Um, Paul is so frustrated with them, and he says, "'Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh?' And I would argue that um, this is our challenge, um, that once we get past, even for a short time, uh, the, the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups of our lives, so often we get complacent and we say, I have done it, instead of saying, Christ did it for me. So if Christ is at the center of our decision, He must remain at the center of our process. Uh, and, and this is the, the seventh principle of Celebrate Recovery. Will you put that up for a minute? Really simple, reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God and His will for my life and to gain the power to follow His will. Right? To reserve a daily time with God so that I can know His will and have the power to follow it. What do you call a car with no gas? I call it a statue, right? What do you call a person with no food? Uh, eventually, that becomes a corpse. What do you call a Christian with no Christ? Uh, I, I think there's really only two things we can um, call a person who claims to be a Christian but doesn't spend time with God, right? Either we become a hypocrite or we become a Pharisee. We become a hypocrite because we, we say God's in the center of our life, but we don't do anything to live that out. Or we become a Pharisee, we say, yeah, I, I know it's about Jesus, but I'm really more focused on the rules and being a good person and looking good to others, and not so much on the person behind the rules. So I, I think this is absolutely essential for us, and it's so basic um, that we need a daily time with God. This doesn't have to be complicated. doesn't have to be elaborate. I'm not saying that you got to go learn the, the Greek and Hebrew and, and, and memorize the whole book of, of Leviticus. I'm just saying every day, Every day, you need a time with God. And if you don't have it, and you end up like a car without gas, right? Without a, like a person without food. Uh, the, the, the expectation for this is really simple. Uh, by the way, if you've not done this before, um, 
do this Gospel of Mark thing with us, right? We're reading the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark today. One chapter a day, right? I mean, you could do more than that. That's great. But start with one chapter a day um, and work through a book of the Bible. And every time you open up your Bible, say, uh, I'm going to turn off all the distractions. I'm going to be wholly focused on Him. I'm going to pray and begin and say, God, I just want to know you better. Help me to learn more about you today as I read your word. It's really simple, right? It's not rocket science. It's not great theology. It's just a daily time where you're, where you're talking to God in your prayers and you're listening to God through Scripture. I really believe this is, in some ways, um, perhaps the most important spiritual discipline in our lives. And, and uh, I'm reminded that as, as Jesus goes about His ministry, He keeps doing this. If you've been reading Matthew with us or Mark with us, you've noticed he keeps running off by himself to be alone with God. Really interesting because Jesus is God, right? And, and talk about having a perfect relationship with God, but Jesus still needs this time. In fact, there's moments where he uh, does all this teaching and preaching and healing and he runs off to be by himself to spend time with God and like the crowd follows him, right? And so he, he feels compassion on them and he feeds them. This is what we read this morning. Uh, and then um, he leaves them and he goes off alone to be with God again. The, the, the last night of his freedom, right, Jesus spends with his disciples and then alone with God. And I would say to you um, that if Jesus couldn't make it without alone time with God, you probably can't either. So today, um, really a simple challenge. I want to ask you to pick a, a time every day, a regular time that you can spend with God, right? It may be in the morning. It may be in the evening. It may be during lunchtime. I don't care what it is, but make it a habit. Pick a time that's regular and say, God, you are important enough for me to schedule you into my life. I'm not going to fit you in where it's convenient. I'm going to fit everything else around you. So this time is your time. It might be 15 minutes. Right? And, and I want to tell you, the more time you spend with God, the more you're going to crave it. The more you're going to realize how much it helps you to be centered on His will and empowered to live out that will. And you're going to discover maybe after a little while, 15 minutes isn't enough and you want more. That's awesome, right? Um, but you need it. And so schedule a time for God in your life. Um, it is the most important component of avoiding that relapse, of saying, um, I, am, I am whole again, not by my own strength, but by the grace of God. Okay, that's our first uh, critical step to avoid relapse. Uh, the, the second um, is a little different, and it, it connects more directly to our beatitude this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and will you put that one up, the, the next principle? Principle eight is yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. I think there is a critical component of our wholeness that's related to making others whole. And sometimes that leads to persecution. Right? Sometimes that leads to making the world uncomfortable because we're not ashamed of our faith. Daniel's a perfect example of this. Uh, Daniel is a guy who is um, working a secular job in government in a foreign country, but is unwilling to compromise on his faith. 
And, and in fact, um, he's done such an incredible job of living out his faith that all of his enemies know that he's going to be uncompromising on his faith, right? They know that whatever we need to do to get Daniel, it's going to have to be related to this because he's not immoral and he's not stealing and he's not lying, but he's going to pray every day, three times. So they, they create this law, um, uh, rather they get the king to create this law, and Daniel um, responds in a really interesting way. Daniel doesn't get a bullhorn and go to town square and pray into the bullhorn and say, this law is unjust and I will never... No, he just does what he has always done. He doesn't respond by changing in any way. He just goes home and he prays. He doesn't close the windows to his house. Apparently, he doesn't lock the doors because people come in and find him. He doesn't change his schedule. He says, this is who I am. If it results in persecution, so be it. This is too important to change. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Daniel uh, gets thrown into the lion's den. We know that miraculously God shuts the mouths of the lions. Uh, And we know that the king is at least somewhat brought to faith because of this incredible miracle and the witness of Daniel. But even if it wasn't, right, even if it wasn't the case that he was saved from the mouths of the lions, I think Daniel would change nothing. And so I wonder for us today, um, where is it that we are um, called to live our faith out in, in such a way that the world sees the very best of us? Uh, I'm convinced that people who have been rescued are almost compelled to tell the story of how they've been rescued. Uh, and and we, we see this throughout Scripture. And we, the Jewish people were saved from slavery to Pharaoh 3,500 years ago. And here we and they are still today celebrating that rescue. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed as well, as we've been reading through Mark together, uh, there are all these times where Jesus and the Gospel of Mark particularly will do a miracle, and then he'll tell people, hey, shh, 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 don't tell anybody what I did, right? Just let's keep this on the DL. And, and I think there's a couple reasons for that, and, and maybe the most significant is that Jesus is trying to have the message, not the miracles, be the focus of his ministry. Um, but it never works, right? And if you've been reading along, you notice, like, he'll heal the leper and he'll say, hey, don't tell anybody that I healed you. And the leper will be like, you know, I'm going to tell everybody, right? Uh, And and he'll he'll heal a man um, possessed of demons or he'll heal somebody who's blind or he'll raise somebody's daughter from the dead. And you're thinking, wait, how is it that Jesus is in a room with like four people and he said, don't tell anybody what I just did and we're reading it in a book now because they all told everybody, right? Because when you've been rescued, it's really hard to keep that in. And so I would say for you, um, whatever that looks like in your life, whether Christ has, has rescued you from um, some kind of trauma or addiction or sorrow or hurt, um, from, from sin, from shame, whatever it might be, um, if you really are in touch with the power of that rescue, it's really hard to keep quiet about it. And you don't need to. And in fact, your story, telling your story, may be exactly the way that somebody else comes to that wholeness as well. And yes, you might get persecuted for it. And it's totally worth it. And it's totally worth it. Rick Warren says, God never wastes a hurt. I really like that. God never wastes a hurt. Um, Not that God causes 
all of the pain in our lives, but um, that when things happen, um, God always is going to work to redeem that in some way, uh, or uh, actually, as, as Celebrate Recovery often says, to recycle our pain. I really um, am convinced that it's true uh, that those who are hurt are the best witnesses to those who are hurting. If you've been through a really painful divorce um, and come out on the other side, then you are a wonderful person to go and speak to somebody who's going through that process and say, hey, let me just tell you my story. Let me tell you how God helped me through this. If you are dealing with uh, an eating disorder and you've had some victory over it and you know someone else with a similar eating disorder, to go and say to them, hey, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what God has done in my life and I want to give you some hope that He can do it in yours as well gives you a credibility uh, that other people don't have who haven't been through that pain. If you're a parent and your child is going through unbelievable trauma and stress or just kind of off the deep end in terms of behavior, isn't it a help to know that another parent who's been through that same thing can come alongside you and say, let me, let me tell you what it's like. Let me tell you how we got through this. Recycling our pain by, by telling the story of how God has helped us to others is part of healing, part of our healing, right? That, that this is how the pain becomes something else. And so uh, I want to suggest um, that as you are, are um, in this process of healing, that part of your process is going to be to help somebody else along. Um, one quick caveat about that. Not every story already has a happy ending. And you and your story might be in the middle of a movement from brokenness to wholeness rather than um, at the end celebrating your victory and Christ's victory in you. That's okay. You still have a story to tell. Hey, you know what? I'm still struggling with this, but in the midst of my struggles, this is where I've been seeing God. And sometimes those stories are even more powerful, right? Because I think we have this idea in the Christian world that like we're all supposed to be Paul, Right? You know, I'm on the Damascus Road. I'm a horrible person trying to murder all the Christians. And then I meet Jesus. And then I'm the best person ever. And I'm an apostle. And I reach the whole world for Jesus. Most of us aren't Paul. Right? Most of us are Peter. I love Peter because Peter just screws up and apologizes and screws up and apologizes and screws up and apologizes. Even after the resurrection, he's still screwing up and apologizing. Right? I, I am Peter. Right? I am the like mess up 20 times kind of guy. And so, um, That story has value, right? Peter's story has value. Your story has value. You maybe have overcome one thing and fallen into something else. Tell your story, right? This is what God's been doing in my life, and this is what He's working on in me right now. John Baker says, Do you realize there are only two things you can't do in heaven? One is to sin. The other is to share the good news with people who have never heard it. Which of those do you think is the reason God is leaving you on earth? I really like that. I want to say it again. Um, Do you realize there are only two things you can't do in heaven? One is to sin. The other is to share the good news with people who have never heard it. Which of those do you think is the reason God is leaving you on earth? There are people in your life already that God is calling you to share your story with. And sometimes it might be really an intense conversation, and sometimes it might be a really simple thing. Uh, I had a conversation about three weeks ago with a friend in the church, 
And she told me that sometime in the middle of the fall, uh, with all the COVID stuff going on, with worshiping from home, um, with all the stress of everything happening in our world, she kind of just took a break from her relationship with God, right? Just, just sort of fell away. Not an intentional thing, just all of a sudden she woke up one day and realized she hadn't been worshiping in person or online, and she hadn't been thinking or talking to God at all, and she felt like she was in kind of a dark place. She said that uh, in January, she got an email from me um, inviting her to do this read through the Gospel of Matthew thing. And I mean, I'm an evangelist for for a quiet time with God because it's so important to me in my um, spiritual life. And so I sent out a lot of notes to a lot of people and she got one and she said, uh, Jim, I can't tell you how much that little email meant to me. Um, because I started doing it. I started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and then I started reconnecting with God, and then I started worshiping online again, and, and now I feel like my, my spiritual life is revived, almost resurrected, all because of literally just an email I sent saying, hey, this is part of my story. It ought to be part of yours too. So who are the people you're called to, to share your story with? Who are the people you're called to invite back into a life with God. Uh, recovery requires a decision followed by a process. Until your pain is recycled, it's just pain. So this is part of your process of recovery, helping others. Uh, and we are not in the business of crash diets in the church. We're not in the business of, uh, of, of quick change. We're in the business of body transformation, heart transformation, spiritual transformation. That's what this whole thing has been about. That's what the Beatitudes are about. How do we move from brokenness to wholeness? Uh, And so I want to encourage you um, to think about where you are in your life and where those hurts, habits, and hang-ups are that you've been struggling with and and what might the next step be for you in this process. Um, And maybe today it's making a commitment for a daily time with God. Maybe today it's saying, hey, I got to think about how I can share my story with someone that they can be whole to. Um, But I really believe this is critical for us, that as the people of God, um, we need more than just a decision to follow Jesus. We need a process by which we do it. And I think these Beatitudes are that process for us. So today, I want to close um, um, hearing the Beatitudes again in a slightly different format. And as you listen, I want to ask you to be in prayer and maybe listening to God to say, hey, God, what's my next step in my journey from brokenness to wholeness? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who invites us to come to know you more. In your name we pray. Amen.